Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today, I'm speaking to a London-based writer and broadcaster. She's the co-host of the popular podcast and MTS radio show, Literary Friction, and her writing's been published in a number of magazines, including Elle, The White Review, Harper's Bazaar and The Sunday Times. She also hosts literary events for bookshops and festivals and occasionally presents the BBC Four programme Open Book. Her new work is This Ragged Grace, a memoir of recovering and renewal. Octavia Bright, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I sort of, reading your bio there, I think we could almost be the same person, (laughs) (laughs) except I haven't written this magnificent book, which just seemed to me such a work of bravery because it takes on your life, all the good and bad bits. And I wonder about that decision of deciding to open yourself up to such public scrutiny. Thank you, first of all. It means a lot to me that you enjoyed reading it. When it comes to bravery, honestly, I didn't think about it that much. I think because I'm a writer first and foremost, and writing's what I do to make sense of things. And this book is about my recovery from addiction and also my father's descent into Alzheimer's, two enormous life experiences that I had to write about in order to understand them. And I had this sense that they were related somehow and that there was a a kind of crossing over that happened between our two experiences and I needed to figure it out. So I, I wrote about it to do that and it it came up, you know, the, the thought of, oh, this will be read by people and how do I feel about that in the writing? But it wasn't something I dwelled on and now it feels very real, now that publication is on the horizon. But I think, you know, I'm also a thrill seeker. I've always been a thrill seeker and there is a bit of a thrill in that too. Mm. Now, you talk about addiction and the particular addiction you're you're referring to is alcohol, but it's also about love. You write in chapter one that love is an addiction. And I just wondered if you'd unpick that for us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a book that contains lots of different kinds of love and hopefully sort of shows the difference between the compulsive relationship to love and the, I hesitate to use the word healthy, but the more holistic relationship to love that is able to come once I disentangled from that compulsive way of being. But certainly early in my recovery, when I was still very much in the addict mindset, which is one of total intensity and a desperate need to get outside of the self, love was something I could fix on I mean, I guess you could ask the question is, is it even love if you're fixing on it? And I do think that's an interesting question and one I tried to interrogate a bit in the book. Mm. But, you know, that that thrill and excitement of a new relationship or a new crush, a new kind of infatuation, it can be so all-consuming. And I think if you have an addictive personality or you are an addict and therefore you're in that way of relating to things, you're going to seek as much from it as you possibly can, as much thrill and as much distraction from reality as possible. And that, of course, was what you were getting from alcohol. Now, you didn't really think that you had an alcohol problem. So why did you decide to get sober? Yeah, it's funny when I think back on it now, I was falling apart in other ways. I was mentally very unstable and um, really losing my grip on reality, which at first I enjoyed because I didn't want to be in reality. I found it very boring. But after a while, it became impossible to do the things I was needing to do at the time, like my thesis. I was studying for my PhD at the time. 
And that was all getting very chaotic. But also I was, you know, having times where I was hallucinating, I was really, really losing my grip between what was real and what wasn't and found this powerful death drive waking up in me that meant I kept putting myself in really dangerous situations and then not really understanding why. And so I went to see a therapist through the student psychological services at my university and started working with her and... I'm sure she knew what was going on. I was still in my denial, but we got to a point where we realised we needed a bit more help. So we called in a psychiatrist also through the university. And I went to see him and I don't remember to this day talking about my drinking. I remember telling him about my mental instability and my anxiety and all of these other things. And at the end of it, he said, hmm, well, you know, the good news is I think if you stop drinking, you'll get better. And it was completely blindsiding for me. But he had obviously been listening carefully for certain things. Whether or not I even mentioned drinking is irrelevant. He heard the addict's state of mind mm. and he heard the pain and the uncertainty of that way of being. And he sent me to recovery meetings and it was a very kind and thoughtful thing to do and I think it probably saved my life, if I'm honest. And how difficult is that process of just completely stopping? It's wild, honestly. I mean, I, I really only want to speak from personal experience, but I think... I had some of the things that it's necessary to have to make that change. I was very young. I was 26. And so it was a time in my life when it was quite difficult to step outside of drinking because it was such a big social force, obviously, at that stage. But I knew I wasn't well and I really, really wanted to get better. And I didn't know how, but I was willing to listen to someone who would say to me, you don't have to feel like this all the time. Let's try something different. I had a lot of pride. I was very suspicious of AA. And that took a while to get my head around. But I found something very powerful there, which was the recognition that what these people were talking about was something I understood. And they were describing the state of mind more than anything else. And that was what offered me enough connection to keep going. And the thing that made it easier to stop was having this community that I could be a part of who understood what I was going through. So the community element was very important in being able to do it. I don't think I would have been able to stop on my own. And as you as you write, I remembered how to wake up rather than come round. Yeah. And then you go on to talk about uh, filling your void with clothes, buying all these things that you just were never going to wear. Yeah, it was a mad moment. I think there's a big shift in identity that happens when you stop drinking, particularly if it's been something of a fixation beforehand. I mean, any big change in your life can bring around a bit of an identity conflict. And I found that I had this deep fear that I would become boring and I would become, you know, my life would go from being technicolor to black and white, you know, trite as that sounds, but that really was the anxiety. And so there was this period where I bought these clothes online, mainly on eBay, as if I was some kind of mad party girl going to really exquisite parties. I was a student and I, that was not my life. But I think it was also speaking to the fact that we live in a culture that suggests consumption is the answer to any problem and any ill. And if you have a, a, a negative feeling, there's something you can buy to fix it. Mm. And that's something I think most people can relate to, addict or not addict. And you actually gave your negative feeling or your negative voice a name. I did. His name was Wormtongue. Named for Tolkien's uh, very famous sycophant. And Wormtongue only really took shape as a voice separate from my own once I got sober. I really heard this need 
to get out of myself in, in another voice. And it was basically the inner critic, which I know not everyone can relate to, but a lot of people I've spoken to can, you know, the voice that undermines you constantly. And, and says things to you that even your worst enemy would not say to you. Absolutely. And you would never say to anyone else <laughs> unless you were a monster. But no, absolutely. I mean, he just anything you can think of, he would undercut you know, really getting at the core of your sense of yourself. It's interesting you make him male. Yeah, well, I'm a Jungian, I guess, and I believe in the animus, and he is my animus. And, he, you know, he doesn't speak loudly to me anymore because I feel like I've integrated the, the voice, but that uh, self-critic is still there. And one of the projects of recovery and also one of the things that happens in the book, really, in the narrative, is learning how to stop being enthralled to that voice and that's very crucial to recovery as well because the addict within you speaks to you I mean when I got to meetings AA meetings it was the first time I met a group of people who understood exactly what I meant when I said you know I think in plural I think in we rather than me and I and now I don't think in the plural so much. Mm. In your quest to escape reality, I suppose. One of the things you did was you moved to New York and you were there really for study. And one of the artists that you're particularly interested in uh, does a lot of work with spirals, which sort of described your state of mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Louise Bourgeois, I think of her as kind of one of the benevolent godmothers in this book. And when I was in New York, I was working on my thesis and she was a big figure in my academic writing. But I also found myself drawn to her work on a personal level because it seemed like I'd found this artist who was describing how I felt on so many different levels. The spiral was one of the motifs that made a lot of sense to me because for bourgeois, it's about you choose which direction you follow it. So either you're you're twisting inwards and tightening in and maybe refusing a lot or you follow it outwards, which is this opening out and kind of trusting the, the power of the universe in a way. And addiction can sometimes feel like, you know, getting drunk or escaping yourself can sometimes feel like you're opening out. But actually, you're the opposite of free. You're in bondage to this need that will not rest until it's satisfied. And that is very, very far from freedom. Whereas I found in recovery, I could follow the spiral in the other direction. And it was a real sense of opening out into the unknown. And the reason that is such a strong contrast with addiction is because addiction is deeply monotonous. It might lead you to do things that make good stories or exciting stories or horrifying stories, but the inner experience of it is just monotony and and sort of pain, actually, and ultimately disappointment and frustration. Mm. Whereas in recovery, everything is to play for. There is nothing that plays out the same way every single time. And that is really what the book is trying to get at, that once you allow life to happen to you, even if it's very painful, there are things in painful experiences that are profoundly interesting or profoundly enlivening or actually in a weird way kind of joyful. Mm. And that's really what, what I learned in this process. Of course, a very painful thing was happening to you in your third year sober. Your father started showing signs of dementia. And I found this bit that you wrote about it so poignant and so true. You talk about how none of you, none of you want to acknowledge it. You say, I've since thought that one of the most complex dynamics in a family is navigating everyone's right to denial. You're all covering up the truth. Absolutely. And I think it's natural that different people will find it easier to see the truth at different times. For me, as my father's daughter, I think I was able to see it sooner because there is a natural progression as the child. You expect your parents to age and you expect them to ultimately become unwell. For my mother, I think it was much harder because it was her partner, her romantic partner. And 
it represents something very different, I think, the loss, that loss, than the loss of a parent. But I also think because I had been so unstable myself and I'd had this experience of profound disorganisation of the self and of living in the alternate reality that I found in my addiction, I recognised that he was slipping out of the reality that everybody shared. And in a strange way, one of the gifts of the fact that I'd been an addict was that I could meet him there perhaps more easily than some of the other members of my family because I was in some ways less afraid of it. I wasn't less hurt by it, but I was less afraid of it. Lots of other steps on on the life journey. You let go of academic work. You stop taking antidepressants. You move to Margate. And there, you write, it feels like a cliche for doing it, but you discover nature. I did. I discovered nature in Margate and also in Cornwall. And um, it sort of landed with the fervour of a new religion almost. And I'm not a religious person, but I find something close to the sublime in the outside world. And I know I'm absolutely not alone there. I felt my addict kick in when I was experiencing this profound awakening. But it wasn't in a frightening way. It was more that I re- I realised that the intensity I'd been seeking in my addictions was there all along. I mean, you go and stand beside the ocean and you are really made very small in a way that is transcendent, actually, paradoxically. And the fear and the anxiety you can feel in wide open spaces that accompanies the true sense of awe, all of that was a real awakening, truly. And I think partly it was so powerful because addiction is a very solipsistic state to be in. You find yourself completely wound up in yourself, in what you need and how you feel. And it's one of the most terrible things about it and why people who are addicted end up cut off from relationships with others because it is such excruciating self-focus. Whereas I found once I was able to really receive the outside world properly, particularly the natural world, I could dissolve myself into it. And it was this incredible relief at my own insignificance. And then this kind of wonderful feeling that I could I could allow it to fill me up with something different, to fill the void, really, with something else. And it also opened you up to be in a state of mind where you could form a new relationship. And as you did so, you, you sought the advice of female artists. Who were they and what did they tell you? Well, there was Louise Bourgeois as ever hovering, but really it was an artist called Jenny Holzer, who's an American artist who works with text, and also the British artist Tracy Emin. Jenny Holzer came to me because she, she worked with words because it was very important to her to have a direct communication with her her viewer. And there's one piece in particular that she put on the front of, of the Selwyn Theatre in New York City. I think it was in the 80s. And the phrase is, it is in your self-interest to find a way to be very tender. And there was something about that that connected profoundly with this new tenderness that had come within myself, actually, from from being sober long enough and from understanding that I'd cut myself off from a lot in my addiction and then in my recovery as well because I was scared of upsetting the balance and and what it might awaken in me. I was dealing with the loss of my father, which was terribly painful, and I just thought, I can't cope with more loss and I don't think I'm robust enough to deal with another person. And then there was this moment with Jenny Holzer's work and Tracy Emin, who who also works with text occasionally, and, and she works with neons. And there was a big neon she made years ago that just says the words, be brave. And it's in this beautiful glowing blue. And I found myself so drawn to it because I realised that bravery is at the heart of loving. 
And I had felt brave in other ways. I'd felt brave for quitting drinking. I'd felt brave for facing up to what was happening with my dad. But I didn't feel brave when it came to opening up my heart again. And because love had become complicated with my addictive tendencies, I was nervous of it. And the work of these artists spoke to me in this way that just said, it's normal to feel afraid of these things. And also, it can be interesting artistically to think about that fear mm. and to get into it. It's not just feelings. It's also kind of the thing that connects you to humanity in a broader sense, which is why I wanted to explore it in the book. Uh, and of course, one of the artists brought up was talking about memories. And you say if she was right, talking about memories making us who we are. If my father was without it, who was it I was helping to look after? That's, I mean, deeply profound. Yeah, I think watching what happened to him over the course of his illness it really changed how I thought about identity and it really changed how I thought about being in relation to somebody. The man I was in relation to over the course of his illness shifted and changed and his wants and needs changed, his personality changed. It was very challenging to keep up with those changes but it also showed me something about the essence of love. Your love is not contingent on the other person's personality. Your love exists in the relationship between the two of you and even though the man I loved was changing. My father was still my father and the relationship between us changed, but the thread that held us together never changed. And my desire to be present with him as he neared the end of his life and as he was ill was really founded in that reciprocal relationship of parent-child rather than in his ability to be the man I looked to for reassurance or the funny man I loved or any of those things. Mm. He has a seizure, he gets very, very ill. And, and you write, how do you decide what makes a life worth living when that life isn't even yours? Did you have any sense of whether he was happy in himself? Was his life worth living? It's a very, very big question and one that shifted all the time. And there were times when I felt he probably wouldn't have felt it was worth living if he looked at it with his well mind. But in his altered state, he found delight in the taste of a chocolate eclair. He found delight in seeing the faces of the people he loved. And that seemed enough. And I felt that we had to listen to the person in front of us, who ended up really just a living, breathing creature rather than an intellect. The complicated thing for me was that when he was well, he'd had a total terror of ending up in a dependent state. He'd watched two of his siblings die after degenerative illnesses, and he had an absolute horror of being a burden. But when he was there, he was no longer in the right frame of mind to be able to make any of those decisions. And I don't think we think well about end of life in this country. And I think the question of being able to choose the end of your own life is one I feel very passionately about that people should be able to, to mm. do. But and by the time you get there, of course, you no longer have the capacity to do so. Exactly, which is why power of attorney paperwork is so important, all the kinds of things you can put in, in place ahead of time. But yeah, I think that when we think about dignity from the perspective of, of being in good health, it means one thing. And when somebody is in ill health, it shifts and changes, you know. I think for a lot of people, the horror of not being able to take care of their own body, for example, is something where their dignity lies in the ability to do that. We probably will all end up in our lives dependent on others again as we age and unable to take care of our own bodies if we live long enough. 
And actually, I don't think there is anything undignified in not being able to do that. It's a very natural relaxing into the end of life, just as at the beginning of life you can't care for yourself. This kind of mania of self-determination needs to shift as you age and as you become dependent again. There's no shame in becoming dependent again. And I think we should work harder to build a, a culture and a community that can make space for that because it's the one thing we all unanimously have in common. We will age, we will ail, and we will die. And your father died uh, whilst your relationship was strengthening, actually, and you go off back to Stromboli where you'd been earlier. I wonder how, how his death affected you and if there was any kind of sense of relief there. There was, and that was complicated to feel. And people had told me I would probably feel it, and I wasn't really ready to hear it. But he died at the end of a long life. He died of COVID um, during the pandemic. He was in a nursing home, so that in itself carried its own trauma. But he was an elderly man. He was at the end of a long illness, and I'd had a lot of time to get used to the fact that he would die. The shock of his death was surprising to me because... It didn't matter how long I'd had to get used to it. There is nothing like it, the death of a parent. It's absolutely world reorganising in some very profound way. But there was this relief and the grief has been much less hard to bear than I thought it would be because I realised also, you know, we're now over two years since he died. I still feel it very intensely, but I was in grief for a good five years before his death. So there is a shift in the in the tenor of it and in that there has been space for other things and space for actually thinking about a future that doesn't have this terribly sad thing looming over us Mm. and the kind of fascinating thing is now that he's no longer alive in his ill state all of us in the family are able to remember more of him before he was ill and that that when somebody has dementia it's very painful to remember them before the change so i think it's natural that you kind of push that out and you just try and deal as much as you can with the man in front of you or the person in front of you and actually now i'm enjoying him coming back to me in other forms and the relationship is ongoing it's fascinating but it is and i feel it will continue to change as i age what about the relationship with the person that you started during the course of this book is that ongoing It is, yeah. She speaks to me sometimes. I think of her a lot. I'm 10 years older than her now, and I will be 10 years sober this summer. So that feels like a very neat amount of time to reflect and think back. And I mean, sometimes she was a lot of fun, you know. I think think sometimes calling her spirit. She was a wild young woman, and I've learned how to, I suppose, live alongside that wildness within me and not let it dominate anymore. But there's a lot to be said for touching on it sometimes in a more controlled environment of of being a bit older, a bit wiser and, and definitely not drinking anymore. And what about the partnership you formed during this time? That was a very unexpected, beautiful thing that happened in spite of myself. I was very nervous of it and there were times I I almost ended it because... I met this person, John, I will give his name. Um, (laughs) I met John at a very old friend's wedding when I was not expecting to meet anybody. I was feeling very closed off to love and I was there as a bridesmaid. I was kind of working almost, you know, and I was tired after the day and I'd been doing a lot of errands and things and there was a Kaylee and one of the other bridesmaids kind of swung around and tried to pull me into the dance and I was very grumpy about it. I almost didn't go and my mother actually happened to be there. She went, oh, go on and kind of nudge me. And so I I allowed myself to be swept up into this dance. And this glorious entity kind of swung towards me. And 
I can't describe, I didn't almost notice him as a human being. He was just like this this embodied creature full of light and this huge smile swung towards me. And there was something very instant in that moment. I, I wouldn't say it was romance. I wouldn't say it was love. I don't believe in love at first sight. It was none of that. It was just the strength of this person's spirit. It showed me something that I'd been close to. And I was curious. And I think curiosity is actually, for me, at the heart of open healthy love not compulsion but just that feeling of curiosity like god I want to know more about you and so we slowly got to know each other and what developed has been you know one of the most meaningful relationships in my life and he was broad-shouldered enough to take on what was happening within my family I didn't know he would be I was nervous to trust him with it but he's he's quite a remarkable person and we have ended up being able to develop a bond that is unlike any other I've had with a man, actually. It's very ungendered and it feels incredibly open and very independent, which after my experience of a very dependent, addictive, compulsive kind of love is really a revelation and it feels much more like the friendships that I've carried with me through my life where there's a lot of space to be whoever you need to be and there's no, there just isn't that feeling of need. It's wonderful. Well, I wish you both great happiness and enormous success with this book. Thank you so much. Octavia Bright, thank you so much for being with me. This Ragged Grace, a memoir of recovery and renewal, is published by Canongate. And you've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer Nora Hall and studio manager Callum McLean. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or from your preferred podcast platform. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.